Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. I am so excited for my next guest, a really an expert in this field of leadership development and starting a new venture with admired leadership that, you know, is something that we don't really, you know, focus on enough in the sales development world and the marketing world on how to build that up. Randall Stutman, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm fabulous. Yeah. If I was any better, I'd probably be you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. That's a bold statement. It's a high <laughs> bar. You set that. a high bar. I must be putting on a good facade here. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks for jumping on. And Randall, I want to talk about admired leadership, but first, tell us about your background and how you built up to starting this program. So kind of somewhat mundane, you know, so I was a professor of organizational behavior and leadership, taught courses at several universities, you know, some prestigious ones. And I started getting asked to do coaching way before anyone even knew what that was, all the way back in the 1980s. So in the process of that, I just started getting asked to do more and more of it. I seemed to, you know, kind of resonate with the questions and the like and started building a firm. And then eventually the firm got big enough where I needed to make a choice and I chose the firm over academia. But admired leadership came about because I got asked these really great questions that I didn't have good answers to. And yet I knew the literature cold. I knew both the practical and the academic literature around leadership, you know, inside and out. And I had nothing but platitudes to tell people around very specific practical questions. And so I started a research project back then that is still going ongoing. It basically tries to identify what I call admired leaders, leaders that produce both exceptional results over time as well as followership. Most leaders either do one or the other, exceptionally, that is in an extraordinary way. But to find leaders that actually have both qualities is really rare. And then finding those leaders and asking a very simple question, what do they do that you and I don't do? So admired leadership is about behavior. It's not about perspective. It's not about assessment. It's not about psychometrics. It's not about, you know, who people think they are. It's trying to find and identify the best practices that create leadership excellence in the routines and behaviors. And what we've been after for 30 plus years is to find those things that are not well known. In fact, in many cases, totally unknown. So And that's what we do to use as foundation to our coaching practices all across the world. And that's what admired leadership is. And so we've been at it a long time and I've been at it a long time too. You know, do you see patterns in the problems that people bring from your coaching practice? And you work with very high achieving people already, right? They already have achieved this level of success, but they come to you with the issues and questions that they have. And you noticed a pattern over the years of of Yeah. So it's a really fascinating question. And it's one that I come at a couple different ways. Number one, a lot of our clients come to us because they're asked to come to us. In other words, their boards or their senior people that are senior to them say, this is a deal-breaking issue for you, or you're right on the cusp, but you need to develop this particular area. Go like, oh, let's find a resource for you. So some people come in and the question is, is how coachable they are how much they like themselves, which oftentimes gets in the way because they've had so much success that they're not willing to make behavioral changes and the like. But when you ask the question of I'm like, what are the common issues and problems that we see? Executive presence is a very common one. People that are very smart and very competent, but lack of gravitas in order to be credible upward, especially to very, very senior people. 
We see issues related to almost every relationship dynamic that you can imagine, conflict between team members, team dynamics and chemistry, critical relationships with peers, influencing without authority, those kinds of issues come up quite a bit. Something else that we see is simply review season. It's like review season right now. So everyone's interested in best practices around how do you give feedback? How do you actually give criticism in a way that people don't find offensive and doesn't like rockets off in their pants? And so, you know, that's a common one. So there are some common ones, but, you know, you'd be surprised at how many divergent ones there are, issues that come up. I was dealing with a leader just this morning who had normally run about a 40-person team and has been elevated in a large organization and now runs 400 managing directors rather than 40. And so the question is, how do you scale that leadership? Now, that's not a question that I get a lot, but you know, over the years, I've seen that five or six or seven times. But in the process, you know, so there's a lot of those one-offs or they happen and they come up every once in a while. But it's a great question because patterns are things that we're looking for all the time, but people are pretty idiosyncratic about what they want to talk about, what they want to work on. But those are a couple. And so in, you mentioned that the boards or the overseers of the executive would want to help them to get to the next level. And so they would refer them over to you. So it's not necessarily the executive comes to you for coaching help. It's that they've been encouraged to do so or volunteer to some extent. That happens. Yeah, there's three pathways to get coaching. One, the pathway that's in your head already, which is a leader wants to get better doesn't know how, wants a resource in order to hone their skills, that they approach us directly. And that happens. Second, that, you know, there's this larger entity called it a board or the management committee or just, you know, the large business heads, whatever else they are. And they've identified someone of high potential and they want to give that person a resource. And so we get kind of, you know, spoon fed to them. And then the third option is there are human resources and talent people that are gatekeepers for people like us. And they go out searching for the best coaches and then bring those resources to bear to critical people and people of substance inside their organization. So we come at coaching all three ways. And there's not one that's more common than the other. All three pretty much come to play. That is really interesting. And I've just been out of the corporate world for so long. I would think if you have support from someone in your company, if it's the executive above you who's trying to, you know, shave off some rough corners, or if you actually have an HR team who's encouraging you to take these programs, what an amazing resource to have and the support from that entity. Yes. Yeah, and it's much more common today than it's ever been, right? Back in when I first started, you know, I would say the majority of senior leaders, especially because that's where we emphasize, the majority of them didn't ever have a resource, never had a coach. Occasionally, they have somebody debrief them around some assessment that everyone was doing, but which is a limited form of coaching. But that's changed. And so now I would say overwhelmingly, the majority of senior leaders in all industries and organizations have resource. There's still some organizations out there that do what I call corrective coaching. And when you get a coach, everybody goes, oh, no, what I do wrong? Like, I'm on my way out of here. Like, they're giving me a coach as my last chance to make a change. There's a few organizations like that left, but the majority of organizations that we deal with, well over 95% are in what I call investment coaching, where they're simply giving people a confidential resource, either in the business strategy world or in the leadership world, which are different. And then that resource is, is theirs to utilize for a period of time. And then sometimes it goes on for a really long period of time. 
all right? Because they find, if they find it really valuable, they find ways to keep that conversation and that relationship going over a period of, you know, sometimes decade, right? Or more. Oh, yeah. You could see. And you mentioned a word that I want to dig. There's a couple things. One is the coachability. You mentioned coachability. That's such a critical mm-hmm. factor in, especially in the sales world and for people coming up in sales and wanting to, you know, advance in their career. Tell me about coachability and, you know, why that's so important. Well, well, you know this, people learn when they're ready to learn and not a second before. Yeah. And so the question is, well, can I prime them ready to learn? So first of all, I have to have things, I have to say things that they want to hear, but more importantly, that they haven't heard before. So the biggest problem that we have is we know so many best practices that are kind of unknown, and most people have low bars for what they're likely to hear. So that makes people a little less coachable initially. But the big things that get in the way of people being willing to be coached or coachable are a couple of fold. Number one is they simply have had so much success that they don't see that what got them to this point won't get them to the next place. So they just want to double down and replicate what they're already doing. And so their notion is, why should I do anything differently? Like I'm getting paid a lot of money. I'm doing really well. I've been promoted three times in the last five years. Like, and you want me to make changes? Like that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, right? So they've had so much success or that, you know, the cousin of that notion is I really like myself. Like I look myself in the mirror and that's where I get most of my advice and counsel is in the mirror and I'm doing just fine and I like who I am. And so the idea of making changes, that doesn't sound like a good idea, right? So that influences, but some people are not coachable because they're behind the eight ball. That is, they're playing catch-up ball. They're already embroiled in an issue. It would take them longer in their mind to catch somebody up and to find the resource to be able to help them. So just like not being able to delegate work downwards, they're just in the stew. And that stew is overwhelming for them. So adding another conversation, having another point of view to them is just not a good use of time or energy. So that makes them less coachable. So those conversations tend to be really short. They tend to be you know, rather curt. And so because people aren't ready, they're just not attuned to wanting to hear anything at the moment because they're just inundated by their own issues and the like. And the third reason that people are uncoachable to degree is because they lack self-awareness. And by the way, there's nothing I can do to make somebody self-aware or self-aware. And so they don't know what they don't know. And so they don't hear things that you and I, so I bring them, you know, different points of view from their team, or I bring them best practices and they don't get it. And they don't get it because they're not aware of what they're doing right now. And they're not going to be aware. They've gotten to some leadership position, how I have no idea, but they really don't make sense of what's going on around them. They don't read context. They don't read situation. They don't read people. And so because of that lack of self-awareness, they're not very coachable, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. There's like a gallery of people in my background, you know, <laughs> that I'm looking through. Oh, it sounds like uh, Bob and Steve. Yeah. Those aren't real names, by the way. But if somebody listens to this and they go, okay, wait a minute, I've got a blind spot here. Can someone become coachable? Is it something that they can learn or are you born coachable and Well, I think as long as you're curious and you want to learn and you believe in being open, yeah, anybody can learn new behaviors, new practices. There's nothing. It's just an attitude. It's like anything else. But it happens when you're ready. And, you know, the notion that you think you have an issue or you think you have something that you want to magnify or amplify, 
and you want to look for a best practice and, you know, you're ready. And when you're ready, you're ready. And so, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything innate to people that makes them coachable or not coachable. I do think there are some people that are very closed minded that think they have answers that they don't have. And they're kind of insecure about other answers and the like. But I don't think that's innate either. I think they got themselves there. So, no, I don't think there's anything biological or, you know, in any kind of DNA connected to being coachable or not. There are some things that you can coach on, some things you can't though, right? That's an issue, right? Okay. I want to pull on that. But one thing that's in my mind is this self-awareness and not to get too, I don't want to get too technical (laughs) with you, but if you realize that someone you're interacting with has little self-awareness, how do you broach that topic and have a conversation so that they can know that they're not self-aware and they can start working on that? Because it's such a personal journey, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, first of all, you know, now we're talking about extremes here because most people are not extremely unaware. They don't lack total self awareness. Most people are averages that are low or moderate. They can still make sense of things, right? But there are people that are very tone deaf. The ultimate irony of all self awareness is if you could make somebody who lacks self awareness self aware, then they weren't self aware, unaware to begin with, right? So, in other words, you can't pull that off. There's nothing you can do right? To make somebody self-aware. So what that means is there are things that you can broach and things that you can't. And when you realize that people are going to take feedback, they're going to take information very differently. You're just going to be highly repetitive. You're going to stay in a fairly simple format. You're going to give them things that they can swallow. You're going to produce lots of data because data can sometimes you know, help them make sense of things. You're going to ask them lots more questions about their own experiences and what they're seeing and other people's reactions to them. So you're going to treat them not you know, in a remedial way per se, but you're going to treat them differently in order to get them to grasp any of the things that you'd like them to grasp. And you're just not going to make as much progress because they just don't get it. And the fact that they don't get it doesn't mean they can't get anything. It does mean that they're going to be slower on the uptick in order to make any kind of really big moves to make behavior change. Yeah, it it almost seems like insult is a strong word, but it almost seems condescending to tell somebody you lack (laughs) self-awareness. It's like you got to come up with a better (laughs) word for it or a better description or you're not self-aware here. Take this class or take a read this book or meditate or something to try to figure out the effect that you're having on people and how it's affecting your communication. Yep. Yeah. No, no question. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, self-awareness comes right out of the psychological literature, emotional intelligence, although it happened, it was well known before emotional intelligence. And it's just one of those big predictors in terms of whether people can make change or not. And none of us are as self-aware as we'd like to think we are, but some of us are a lot more attuned. We pick up on cues, small ones. We can read subtext. We make fast inferences. We understand idiomatic meaning and the like. You know, one of the ways that, by the way, that you know that somebody's lacking self-awareness is people of low self-awareness have a really hard time with jokes and puns and irony and sarcasm, right? Because they don't read a lot of the cues that they would need to read in order to understand those things. So it doesn't mean that they never laugh at a joke, but, you know, if their laugh's a little delayed, right, you know, or they don't get it or, you know, they take things very literally, that's a very normal sign that they lack awareness. But you're right. I don't think I've ever said to anyone, you know, like your problem is you lack self-awareness. I always go around the circle and tell them lots of other things that basically indicate that. But yeah, that's a pretty nasty thing to say to someone. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting if there's sort of a sweet spot, because if you go too far the other way and you're overly self-aware, then you get into like low self-esteem and kind of sometimes depressing sometimes. view of yourself. Yeah. 
Yeah, it could be. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm actually not sure that there's a great connection between self-awareness and esteem or confidence and like, but there might be for some people. I think when you are highly self-aware, if there's anything is you'll overthink things. You'll over you make you you make more inferences than you should. You'll read more into things than you might. That would be more the danger. But usually people that are self highly self-aware can be very strategic, can make lots of change, can motivate people because they can adapt and flex to differences really fast. If you're going to have a ill, you want to be more self-aware for sure. And there are things you can do to work on your self-awareness, just like as an example, just to simply be more attuned to how people react to you. When do they move away from you? When do they move towards you? What do they do? When do they start asking you questions? You know, what do you do? Because you're always creating at least some of, if not half of that reaction. And so I'll ask several people, you know, like, so how are people reacting to you in that team meeting? And they'll say, well, I don't know. I didn't notice because they're not attuned to it. Right. And so just being more attuned to, to what people do in reaction to your behaviors is a way of kind of sharpening your self-awareness to a degree. So interesting. This is fascinating. And, you know, it reminds me of an old saying from Tony Robbins, and <laughs> that to drop the guru name, but he said, the meaning of your communication is the response that you're getting from the other person. It's a quick shorthand to say, okay, whatever I'm trying to communicate, you know, is my stuff, but what kind of response am I getting from the person, you know? And it seems helpful as sort of a shorthand. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Yeah. And one other thing that you mentioned that's really interesting is gravitas. And for the listeners of this, you know, if they haven't been in the business world for very long or even more, and this is another topic, but working in a remote environment like this, it's not necessarily you walk into a boardroom with a, you know, Armani suit and a Rolex anymore. (laughs) You know, you're on Zoom, but What is your concept of that executive gravitas that you work on with clients? And is that something that can be, you know, developed? Yeah. So the answer is absolutely yes. So gravitas coming across as more senior executive presence, all pretty much the same thing. They're made up of a whole lot of behaviors, behaviors that mark or flag status or relationships and the like. And yes, you can start changing within your own personality, change some. There's none of the markers of gravitas or executive presence that you don't do. The question is how many, how often do you do them? Okay. And so all of us have the ability to be more formal at times in our greetings, in the way that we engage, in the way where we sit in meetings, how we engage, how we dress, as you described earlier, the accoutrements that we wear, our office settings, and like, you know, formality is one of those things. Now, too formal and you don't have gravitas, you have almost an arrogance or an aloofness to you, but no formality in any aspect of your style and you lack a gravitas. So there are things that you can ratchet up and ratchet down, of which formality is just one of many, many. And it's the one that we know the most of, but there's things about how you speak and your nonverbals, the way that you engage and listen and talk and things, and even your speech rate, how long you hold the floor, Those are associated with different things that you would say, these are experienced people with lots of importance without being imperial. That's basically what gravitas is. And so what it means, of course, is that people will attend to you, right? So you want to have enough gravitas so that people want to move towards you and listen to you, but also enough relational connection so that people want to yield to you and like you enough in the process. And that's basically what executive presence is. And so, yeah, very coachable, very you know, doable, again, because 
you do everything you need to do to be to have presence. The difference is how often do you do them and where do you do them? So an example is normally we become more powerful and more senior and presence oriented and have more gravitas as we move to more junior audiences. And we become more relational or and what people call attractive, that is socially attractive when we move upward in our conversations. That is when we start dealing with other seniors or people of high status. Okay. But the key with gravitas and executive presence is to be the same in all directions, is to use the same markers and the same style, whether you're dealing with somebody very senior or you're dealing with somebody very junior, whether you're dealing with a hot dog vendor outside or whether you're dealing with, you know, a, a brand new candidate or, you know, a client that a prospective client, that your style has the same level of markers in it that create a sense of presence and gravitas. And that's the hard thing to accomplish because all of us want to modify and become more obsequious upward and more powerful downward. Gosh. Okay. So this is such an interesting, we're kind of sharing your secrets here. If you've made it into this, <laughs> this is a conversation. No secret yet. <laughs> this, you just, it's the secrets are being revealed. Now, gravitas, when I think about gravitas, it feels like an intangible it's almost like an intangible feeling that you, you get from someone. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying is there are tangible, practical things that people can do, even if they're, you know, younger and newer to the business world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, think about just take it out of gravitas for a second. Think about something like indecisive. Okay. Now I can tell you whether you're indecisive in a given decision, but how do I generally feel that you're indecisive? Well, you delay a little bit, you ask more questions right? You're more thoughtful, okay? Some of your decisions when you do make them are not highly convicted, right? And so I, from when I pull all the composite of all these different acts and behaviors together, I draw a conclusion that you're, you, you lean toward indecisive. You're somewhat indecisive. So it's not as if this thing comes from magic or intuition. It's that it comes from our experience based on the styles that people bring to us. And gravitas is the same way, is that when you do a lot of things that other people who have gravitas in our lives or that draw us in terms of their presence. When you do those things, we feel like you have more of it. And when you do less of those things, we feel like you have less of it. And then, you know, you and I both know there are some very junior things to do that express, you know, a naivete or an inexperience and so forth. And so those things undermine gravitas, but those are pretty easy to get rid of over time. The hard part is knowing the kind of composite set. And there's no just like, I can't give you six behaviors or 10 behaviors. There's literally dozens and dozens, but, and I don't have to get you to use, you know, do dozens of things. I need to, for you to usually do three or four different things a lot, and then you'll wind up having more gravitas. Establishing that. And it's interesting because, you know, here at Tenbound, we had uh, different sales executives come through and there was one who had gravitas and was just able to establish even over a Zoom meeting, that level of sort of relaxation with very, very senior executives and investors that laid the groundwork to be able to have a business conversation. And, you know, now that we're talking about this, I realize, you know, there was just a certain way of communication and just, I don't want to say a vibe, but it was just it's a vibe. Yeah, it was a, just sort of a gravitas right. vibe, I guess. Yep. So two things were happening there in that conversation for you that I can project. Number one is that person has gravitas by the way that they present and stylistically themselves, how they express themselves. And then two, the thing that made it even more, had more emphasis around it was because they did it 
even though they were comfortable and relaxed in that style around people that other people would have been unrelaxed or less relaxed or uncomfortable in that moment because they were dealing with trying to sell themselves or advocate for themselves and the like. And that person didn't do that. So the combination of those things really is powerful. Like, wow, you're the same regardless of who you're talking to. And you do things that create a sense of presence. When you do both of those things together, you have gravitas. Gosh. Okay. This is amazing. All right. So I've got my homework ahead of me here. (laughs) Now you've established these patterns of success. So now let's go away from all the problems, you know, that people have and you've established this pattern of success and then codified it into the admired leadership program. How did you go about developing that structure? So we've been at this coaching thing for 30 plus years. And I finally had enough colleagues convince me that we really needed to bring some of our work, just some of it, to a larger group of people and have more influence with it. And I kind of went there kicking and screaming, although, you know, most days I like it still. And what we chose to do is out of 400 plus behaviors and leadership excellence that we may be able to identify and uncover over the years, we took 100 of them to cross 10 in each module, 10 modules. And we put them in a platform like format, like a course like format. And then we created videos for each one and then examples and exercises and a set of questions, discussion questions for each one. And slowly, you know, about not a little less than three years ago was the Mark Leadership digital platform was born. And we've had a lot of fun with it and a lot of success with it. And it really helps with a lot of people gain access. And almost all the behaviors can be explained because if it's truly if we really have identified something wise around leadership excellence, we should be able to explain it in less than 10 minutes. It doesn't require a perspective or a theory or anything else. And so they're all, all the videos are explained and the outlines are less than 10 minutes long. Some of them only four or five minutes and they're immediately actionable. And that's the cool part. And the most senior leaders in the whole world, most of them go, why didn't I ever heard that before? Like that makes perfect sense. I can start doing that this afternoon. My problem is which one of the five things that you just exposed to me do I do first? That's the harder question. And so that's where admired leadership has gone to into the larger world. We still use all the behaviors as foundational to our coaching practice, as well as our own experiences and our own common sense and the like. We don't teach behaviors when we coach. We basically bring them up as the situation and the question arises. So we've had a lot of fun with admired leadership digital. All I can tell you is I think there's more room to have greater growth than we're seeing. We're just at the thumbnail of seeing our exposure. And so that's what we're doing. It seems like the learning style of people in the digital age is more along, give me a quick hit, you know, give me an exercise, and then I'll go and use it for a while, and then come back and learn the next thing, as opposed to sort of either an unstructured program, you know, where you just sort of piece together YouTube videos and things like that, or a really long, you know, one hour lecture, you know, people have sort of tuned out from paying attention that long, it seems. Right. Actually, what we see is two patterns, and you're absolutely right. The one pattern is not just a soundbite orientation, but it is the notion of give me something really practical that I can get my teeth, dig my teeth into and shake around and really digest and put into practice. And then I can come back in a self-paced way and do another one, another one, another one versus, you know, some of the best podcasts out there and some of the most loyal audiences, they're listening to people for three hours. You know, which is you know crazy to me, but nonetheless, that so it seems to be that some people have a really big appetite for very dense and long-winded kinds of things. But the majority of us 
have the opposite appetite. And that is, we want to get something really quickly and be able to focus on and make it very practical. And that's what, what kind of what admired leadership is. The cool thing about the platform and about the behaviors is you don't need to know anything before knowing one of the behaviors. In other words, there's no prerequisite. There's no, you don't have to know it, this before you watch this one per se. You can pop into anywhere and immediately get value out of any one behavior, depending on what your interests are. If you want to know how to manage your time so that you can find more of it, then there's behaviors around that. If you want to focus on relationships, there's behaviors around that. So that's the fun part is that it's not horizontally or vertically connected. They're all standalones. Now they're connected thematically, but not from a standpoint of understanding. Yeah. That's another, you know, way that learning seems to have changed where it's like, okay, it's just in time, right? I need to go do a performance review and I don't know what I'm doing. Like, you know, let me just go in, you know, five, 10 minute video, do a few exercises, get some skills, go use it immediately and come back, you know? Yep. Exactly right. Can I give you a behavior? You want to get into a behavior? Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, sure. Okay. So I'm just going to pick one at random. I'm going to pick an inspiration, motivational behavior because all of us could be better at that, right? So what happens, of course, is as we go to inspire people, one of the most common things we use is praise, right? Recognition, acknowledgement, approval. It's something that most people never outgrow. We like people telling us great job. We like people giving us some level of compliment, flattery around our work and the like and so forth. So some leaders are better at than others. But what happens, of course, is the best leaders in the whole world tend to be rather what I call praise stingy. And the reason, and if you've ever heard that, you know, you don't offer enough praise to your kids or your spouse or your friends or or your team, it's because you have high standards. Because again, remember, leadership is about results and followership. And results really matter. And so the idea that I tell somebody they've done great work, it really needs to be great work. And the higher standards I have, I don't see great all that often. I mean, that's the problem. So typically, one of the most critical pieces of feedback that good leaders get, I don't mean average leaders, but really good leaders get is more praise, please. Right? Give me more praise. You're not as praise oriented. You're kind of praise stingy. And so when we study admired leaders, we don't find that they violate that rule at all. They're as praise stingy as everybody that has really high bars and high expectations. But they do something that you and I have never been taught to do. And we do it, but I'm going to articulate in a way where you can do it more often. And it's called third-party compliments. So when you study the best leaders, what you find is that when they see somebody doing something great, yeah, occasionally they'll tell that person, but they always tell a third party. So they'll always tell a peer or they'll tell your, you know, the client's assistant or they'll tell, you know, one of your children's friends that not present. They'll compliment them in front of, right, that other person, that third party. And what they've done is they've just released a time-released vitamin, right? I mean, because that information is going to get shared back with that person. That person's going to then, you know, might be a day, might be an hour, might be three weeks, might be a month, might even be six months. But at some point, they're going to say, hey, David, I don't know what you did. But on that podcast, Randall said, you just were asked some of the best questions. And you're going to say, you did? And I'm going to get a little fuse about it. I don't know. And one of the reasons that that's so powerful is, would we ever give praise to a third party if we didn't really believe it? So the attribution of sincerity goes right out the roof. So we know that people would never tell a third party unless it was highly sincere. And that's why it has all the impact. So it carries more weight. So what I'm going to tell you is the best leaders don't give more praise. They give more third party praise. And what they constantly do is they're looking for excellence or good work any place. 
And they occasionally will tell that person. I want them to tell that person as often as they can, but they always make it a habit of telling a third party. And that third party almost always shares it. And all of a sudden people start to like, you know, puff out their chests and act differently. Why? Because they got third party praise. Not only did I make them look good in front of somebody else, and not only did I make myself look more sincere, right, which is what the whole point was, but also you and I both know that there's no but in a third-party praise. Like critical leaders go, that was a great presentation, but slide 16, you know, you really need to, okay, there's no but in third-party praise. So it's only positive. It's going to be shared. It's highly sincere, okay, and it makes you look good in front of somebody else. What's more powerful than that? And answer is almost nothing. And it's hugely inspirational to people. So this idea of third-party praise is a behavior that we teach lots and lots of people. It's just one of many, many hundreds of behaviors that we've been able to identify. Can't read about that in the literature, at least not yet, and not unless we start writing about it or somebody takes it from us. And it's something that has a huge impact, and you can make a habit out of it very quickly. And you're not in the presence necessarily of the person. It Almost sounds like never. It's not, yeah, you're talking, this yep. is a side conversation, not, yep. yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That time release vitamin. I love it that. Is. <laughs> that. It really. is a time release vitamin. Yeah. And yeah. what I find fascinating is sometimes it's months before that person shares it. And when they share it, you just beam, right? Because of the sincerity oh, yeah. of what it must represent. Okay. And by the way, study some of the more famous people in the world and you'll see they finally stepped out and had a chance to use their skills or talents because they heard third party praise coming from a mentor, a teacher, a parent, that they had never heard before. And they finally started to believe in themselves because of that third-party praise. It's one thing when somebody says you're doing a great job. It's another when they tell somebody else and they say to you, this person you respect thinks you're doing a great job. And you go, it must be true. Otherwise, they wouldn't have told the third party. Oh, I mean, you would be absolutely thrilled to hear that. I can imagine <laughs> it hasn't happened yeah. to me that much, but yeah. Well, it should happen more often now that we've done this podcast. But yeah, so. It's something, again, you can master and make a habit out of really fast. You know, in a couple of three weeks, you know, you can get used to giving third-party praise intentionally. Again, there's no one that doesn't give third-party praise occasionally, okay? The question is how intentionally, how often? And now that you have it in your head, it can be part of your leadership style if you so choose. Okay? Mm, I love it. And it's just one of many of the findings over at admired leadership and it's so i love the fact that this is something that you can you know dive into and do right online versus you know sure. in the past you'd have to go in and meet with somebody and you know this is totally digital so yeah yep one thing we have found david is conversation really matters it's one of the reasons that training is not as effective as we'd like it to be because they're one-offs, they're, you know, they're, a, you know, a sage on a stage or whoever that person is, that person, even if they're very skilled, gives a set of information, that information is done. And then we go back to be busy at doing what we do. Right. And so one of the things that we like about admired leadership also is it doesn't only have to be a coaching conversation, but we work with lots of teams and we get them in the platform and then module by module, we have a conversation every month. And we get into behaviors and we ask them only to focus on one. Everybody's going to focus on a different one. But of the 10 behaviors in that module, which one are you going to try to make part of your leadership style? And then, you know, you start making five, six, seven, eight behavioral changes. Oh, you come across as an entirely different leader in person. And that's the cool part. So, but it's the conversations, the ongoing dialogue, which is one of the reasons we write those field notes every day. So every single day we write admired leadership field notes that are free to anybody. 
They're like a couple of minutes worth of ideas, and they're always practical. They're best practice kinds of things. They're not admired leader behaviors, but they're close. I mean, they're you know wisdom or practical advice that's best practice around a whole host of different topics. Every day is different. Relationships to feedback to today was all about nobody can read your mind, and so you got to be careful not to get ahead of people because you know they don't know what you're thinking and the like. And so, and people love to read them and use them for their teams in order to keep an ongoing conversation. It's the conversation. It's not just the behavior, but the conversation around the behavior that really creates difference. It really does. It brings it to life. And they used to call it, I actually worked at a training company for a long time and they would call it sheep dipping. So you dip the sheep, you know, in the fluid or whatever it is. That's an old metaphor. You remember that one? <laughs> And it was kind of like training, you know, you go to a training, it's great. You get a whole thing of notes and then you just go back to doing whatever you do. So you got to have that ongoing, you know, conversation. And are the field notes open to the public or? Yeah, anybody. Yep. Anybody that's a leader. Yeah. Anybody. And by the way, all you do is type, you know, is Google admiredleadership.com slash field notes. Yeah. And if you just Google admiredleadership.com, you just scroll down, you'll see field notes. And you just click them and subscribe. And they come to you every morning at around seven o'clock your time. So they're early morning things. They come seven days a week. I've been writing them for, you know, a couple of years now. We got, you know, lots and lots of thousands of people that read them every morning. And you'd be shocked. I don't want to tell you some of the people that read them, but there's pretty impressive leaders that read them every morning and swear by them. And so, you know, and it's fast. It's one of the fastest growing daily emails on Substack. And so we're doing something right in the process, but they're just tight. They're just crisp. And they're right to it and they're practical and they're not rah-rah. They're not like light your hair on fire today, the kinds of things. And people just like got it. another subscriber. So, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> I'm seeing this but right yeah, now. we love we and we cool. the more the merrier because we want to create a community of best practice people, people thinking about behavioral best practice. That's really what field notes are, and that's what admired leadership is all about. Yeah. This is so great. Randall, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. I feel like we just scratched the surface. So I'm signing up for the field notes right now. Okay. And we'll get you back on the podcast to dive in more. But this great. is great. Looking forward amazing. to it. Okay. Well, congratulations on what you've created and your audience, because my understanding through other people is your audience is very dynamic and full of lots of interesting and curious people. So and we can get some of those people interested in best practices and reading field notes and part of our leadership in our community, then great. And we're going to follow you. So you follow us. Okay. Perfect. All Randall, right. thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Talk soon.